Well, I am not certain what your Thanksgiving traditions are. Uh, some of you have been around long enough to know some of our, my family's personal Thanksgiving traditions. And you know that every year we make like all the loads and loads and loads of homemade noodles and then just like eat as much starch as possible on Thanksgiving between stuffing and noodles and mashed potatoes and then just like there's a little sliver of turkey on my plate just to say I ate some protein too. When I was a kid, uh, my grandmother like made the best pies. That was her favorite thing to do. She made pies and she made all kinds of strange pies that I was never willing to taste like rhubarb pie. Have you ever had that before? She made that. Uh, But my grandmother made pumpkin pie, which I know is pretty common. But for me as a kid, I thought it was exotic. And I thought it was the coolest thing ever, and I would eat this pumpkin pie. And my, my sisters would egg me on uh, to see how much pumpkin pie I could eat, right? Uh, and so one year, I remember, I remember it vividly, I consumed an entire pumpkin pie on Thanksgiving night. Now, here's what you've got to understand. Uh, my family tradition at the time was we had two Thanksgivings on the same day. Right? Because my parents both grew up in Lower Bucks County, uh, and my grandparents' houses were like five minutes apart. So we'd go down, have lunch at one, and then over for dinner at the other. And then I finished the night with an entire pumpkin pie. Well, I didn't finish the night, right? I was up all night in the bathroom uh, getting rid of the pumpkin pie that I had eaten. And I spent that whole night so sick. I, I don't know if, I, like, if it was pumpkin pie or if I got some kind of food poisoning or something like that. But here's what I do know. I have never had pumpkin pie since. This is a true story. Uh, I know that I still kind of like it, but the the remembering what happened radically changed my perception on pumpkin pie to this day. The Apostle Paul had a very similar occurrence, albeit much more important than pumpkin pie. He met Jesus... And everything in life was radically different after it happened. Included in that was his perception or view of himself. And for Paul, his perception and view of himself was everything. You have to understand this, right? I would imagine that in that day and age, it wasn't much different than in our day and age, where we basically say you need to think great things about yourself, right? The power of positive thinking. And I'm all for positive thinking, Uh, But I'm not for building ourselves up to be something that we aren't, right? Which sometimes our culture necessitates in order for us to survive. And in Paul's day, you've got to remember, Paul felt that way. Like, he looked at his life and thought, man, I'm getting an A-plus here, right? I'm really religious. I'm keeping the law. I'm doing everything right. He called himself, uh, in the letters of the Philippians, blameless. Those are strong words, right? He thought himself to be way up here in terms of self-image. But something radically different became after he met Jesus. Because in 1 Timothy chapter 1, uh, if you have your Bible, you can turn there. If not, feel free to listen along. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, uh, verse 15, this is how Paul now thinks of himself. This is what Paul writes to Timothy. This is towards the end of his life. He's probably sitting in Roman prison. He says, verse 12, I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has given me strength, that he considered me trustworthy, appointing me to his service, even though I was once a blasphemer, a persecutor, and a violent man. His view of himself has changed, don't you think? 
He says, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Now listen to this. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Now, how do you go from being a man who says, I'm blameless, to I'm the worst? It was meeting Jesus that changed everything about how Paul perceived the world and perceived himself. This morning, as difficult as it might be, and I enter into this gingerly, I want to suggest to you that a proper view of self is necessary for us to enter into the fullness of the gospel that Jesus offers to us. So this whole series, we've been talking about the fact that no perfect people allowed, right? And we've been talking about some really bad people that Jesus embraces. And if you are anything like me, we say, yeah, that's right, Jesus does all of that. And we never really associate ourselves with those people. My goal this morning is to show us that we are them. Because Paul began to see himself as them after he met Jesus. So Paul's uh, perception of himself radically changes. It goes from being someone who is blameless to someone who he says, I am the worst of sinners, or in some translations says, I am the chief sinner. Now, what on earth does Paul mean when he uses this phrase? Well, some would suggest, and there's truth in this, that Paul saw himself as the chief sinner because he was killing Christians, right? He was a terrorist who was radically opposing Jesus and the move of the church. He was imprisoning people, he was beating people, and he was killing people, and he was taking it even so far as to take the show on the road, so to speak. He was going into foreign places to kind of round up all the Christians and bring them back. So it's pretty easy for us to look at Paul and say, yeah, you are a bad person. But if you stop and think about it, does that make him the chief sinner? I mean, let your mind run through history really quick, and you can think of some really bad people, right? And you can even say, well, there's plenty of people after Paul. He didn't know them yet. So think contemporary to Paul's existence. Probably when Paul's writing this, there's a guy who is the emperor of Rome named Nero. He's one of the worst people you'll ever read about. He persecuted the church so strongly that it says that his garden, his imperial garden, was lit by torches that were crosses with Christians on them on fire. Right? So Paul maybe isn't the worst of the worst, and yet he calls himself the worst. Why? I think there are two reasons for this. The first is that Paul knows himself better than he knows anyone else. Right? So when he looks at himself, he knows every single thing. Every thought, every perspective, every judgment, everything that never comes from below the surface and yet it exists there. He has a full understanding of the depravity that is in himself. And second, I think Paul knows and believes 
that is, it is this thought or this foundation that enables him to truly embrace the fullness of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for him. Listen, Paul is not wallowing, right? He's not sitting around beating himself. Matter of fact, he speaks against that kind of asceticism in the, the letter to the Colossians. He's not sitting around saying, woe is me. He's not living in this un, uh, un, um, unforgivable guilt, right? Matter of fact, he's the guy who speaks about joy more than anyone else in the scriptures. So this is not Paul saying, oh, look at me. I'm such a loser. I can't do anything right all the time. And he's kind of living in this Eeyore kind of state, right? Now, Paul's more, much more saying, look at what Jesus has done because of who I am. And he's living in this euphoric kind of sense of joy and mission and gratitude that comes out of him. So don't mistake what Paul's saying for some kind of like religious beat yourself up phrase. That's not what he's talking about. But I think that if you asked Paul what he thinks about you, he would say, I think you're just like me, Right? This is why Paul says in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, pretty famously, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Or Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, that we were dead in our sins and transgressions, enemies of God, partners with the world. Paul paints the same picture of himself that he paints of us, people who are broken, irreparably broken. Sometimes we think of brokenness and think of a paper that is torn in a few pieces. But Paul's view, and I think Scripture's view of us, is actually much more radical. That we are people who are corrupted in every way possible. Theologians would call this total depravity. Now we need to pause and kind of define this. We've done this before, but let me do it again. Total depravity does not mean that you are as bad as you possibly could be. Total depravity means that every part of you is affected by the brokenness of sin. Last night, um, we watched a movie together uh, called Tomb Raider. It was out in the theaters recently and just came on to video. So if if you've not seen it, I apologize, but let me give you a quick summary of it. She uh, cheats death a million times and wins in the end, right? This is what happens in these movies. (laughs) But there's this scene in the movie that was like, I thought, man, this is perfect. Where the whole point is to, to find this, this treasure or this, the, really this person, the, the, the remains of this person, and uh, they're going to take it back. Uh, but there's one faction saying, no, you can't touch that. If you touch it, it's going to release all kinds of evil into the world. But of course, the payout for this was too good. So the people went ahead and touched it. And as soon as they touched it, like the, the part of their body that touched the, the bones started to turn black and to cripple and to, and to deteriorate, and it went all the way up their arms and all across until they were completely deteriorated. And for me, that's a perfect picture of what the Bible says about sin, right? That we're corrupted in every way possible. Does that mean that you're, that you're you know, a murderer or a rapist or some of these things? I'm not saying that you're as bad as you could be. We're saying that every part of us is corrupted from our mind to our body to our soul to our heart, right? So much so the Old Testament writers would say that the the heart is desperately wicked, right? This is the picture that Paul is trying to get at when he says these things. 
But in the same way that Paul says that he's the chief of sinners, he follows it up by saying that he has received an abundance of grace. He tells us the same thing, right? Because Romans 3.23 says you've sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But Romans 3.24 says that we've all been justified freely through faith. And whereas Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 through 4 says that, that uh, we're dead in our sins and transgressions, partners with the world against God, where there's this powerful verse that says, But God, who is rich in mercy, has acted on our behalf in grace, not by faith of our own, and has rescued us. That the love of God is actually far superior to the brokenness of sin. You see it? And so when Paul starts with his truth that he's the chief of sinners, what he's really driving at is not this wallowing, but the sense of that God's grace is actually that big. Do you see it? It's actually that big. Now believing that sin is that big of a problem for us, that brokenness is that real for us, lends us to live in a certain way, Paul would suggest. And really, there's two things here. There's probably much more, but for our purposes, two things. The first is that it helps us avoid hypocrisy. And the second is that it enables humility in us, right? It helps us avoid hypocrisy, and it enables humility in us. See, hypocrisy is the result of living life through a lens of perfection rather than through a lens of brokenness. Don't you see it? Not that you see yourself as perfect, but you see yourself as on the journey to perfection and ranking other people in regards to perfection, as opposed to seeing the world through a lens of brokenness. Hypocrisy really can be defined in two two ways. The word hypocrite or hypocrisy is thrown around in lots of ways, not that it's not true, but there's really two kind of core ideas to hypocrisy. The first would be like judging other people without being aware or taking account of the problems that you have, right? It's one sense of hypocrisy. Another sense of hypocrisy is sort of putting on this moral superior exterior and looking down at other people without ever really dealing with the problem inside, right? It's why the word hypocrite in Greek is actually translated actor. Did you know that? It's someone just being fake, just acting. Uh, an exterior without dealing with the issue in the inside. Paul says, if you don't start with a gospel that says, I'm deeply broken, you are in grave danger of leading to a religion that puts on an exterior that never deals with the real issues or leads you to judge other people without being completely aware of who you are. Jesus is the one who speaks about hypocrisy more than anyone else. And he talks about it all the time when he comes into contact with situations like this. A bunch of people who are hanging out at church, right? And I'm not calling anyone here a hypocrite. I'm just saying this is when the word tends to come up for Jesus, especially with the religious elite, the Pharisees of the day. And the word hypocrite or hypocrisy shows up all the time in the Gospel of Matthew. Because the Gospel of Matthew is written to Jewish people, right? People who are kind of drenched in the religion of the day, whereas the other Gospels are written more towards Gentile audiences. You will find the word hypocrite or hypocrisy countless times in this Gospel. And listen to the ways Jesus uses it. 
He calls the Pharisees hypocrites when they criticize the disciples for eating on the Sabbath, for picking the heads of grain on the Sabbath. He calls the Pharisees hypocrites when they criticize Jesus for healing on the Sabbath. Why? Because he knows they're judging them on these specifics when they, in fact, are breaking the Sabbath in other ways, if they're going to hold themselves to this intense level of law. Or perhaps most famously, you might remember when Jesus says, why is it that you are so interested in picking the speck out of someone else's eye when there is a plank in your eye? You are hypocrites, he says. For Jesus, this definition of hypocrite that you are judging without dealing internally uh, or being aware of what is true of yourself. And then secondarily, Jesus would say things like, look at the Pharisees. They love to pray in public and out loud so people will look at them and say they're religious. They're hypocrites. Look at the Pharisees. They love to fast in public and let everyone know and they look so forlorn and so broken up so that everyone can heap praise on them. They're hypocrites, he says. Or look at the Pharisees. They give to the poor and to, to the synagogue and to other places, but they do it in public so that they'll be praised. They're hypocrites, he says. It gets so pronounced that Jesus actually calls the Pharisees whitewashed sepulchers, right? And this is, a, this is just an amazing analogy that he uses. Uh, whitewashed sepulchers, translated down, whitewashed tombs, right? So he's basically saying, you are a house of something that is dead, and you're painting it to look really nice on the outside, right? This is what Jesus is saying. These people are pursuing this exterior reality of religion without really dealing with what's going on inside them. And in Matthew chapter 23, when Jesus is talking about woes, he says that the hypocrites go so far as to even kill the prophets of God. Now, when Jesus meets Paul on the road to Damascus, I think the thing that opened Paul's eyes the most is that he was the hypocrite that Jesus was talking about. Look at what he did. The things that Paul mentions in his account of his conversion uh, to faith in Jesus are that he judged, right? And that he was morally superior. And it was these two things that led him in such a divergent way while he was still, in his own words, zealous for God. How do you get so divergent? Because Paul hadn't realized what was truly going on in him. He was, in Jesus' words, a whitewashed tomb. And he had taken it so far as to kill the prophets of God as he stood there and held the coats and confirmed the death of Stephen, and as Jesus is reminding him that when he strikes against the church, he strikes against Jesus himself. Paul wants us to know something. If we are going to be on guard, or if we're going to live a life that is free from this kind of hypocrisy, friends, it's really difficult, But it begins with a truthful and honest and a healthy assessment of who we actually are. An unwillingness to put on a front 
and a desire to be just honest about how broken we are. So that we do not become people who judge others without a full accounting of who we are. Does this mean that we're never supposed to say to someone, hey, I think you're making the wrong choice here? Of course not. But it does mean that we're supposed to do it in a sense that conveys we are radically broken people, right? That you come alongside someone, reminding them of your brokenness and pointing out what you're seeing too is a radically different way than condemning someone for something they're doing. Or putting on some front instead of really dealing with what's going on inside. Paul understands just how easy it is to slip into the stream of religion because he was there and he was completely blinded to it. And for him, the path out starts with an understanding of who they are, of who he is and a turning and embracing Jesus for who he is and for what he's done. But it's not just avoiding hypocrisy, right? Because that's just the negative side of it. But it's embracing humility. For Paul, humility is a central reality of the new life that is offered in Christ. Paul would say famously in Philippians chapter 3, all of these wonderful achievements of my morality and religion, he says they're garbage. He uses stronger words. Compared to knowing Jesus, the sense of of human humility in the presence of divine perfection. This is what happens when we come to grips with who we are and embrace Jesus for who he is. In Romans chapter 12, verse 3, this is what Paul writes to the Romans. Romans, uh, Romans chapter 12 for me is such a powerful text on how we're called to live because he spends the first 11 chapters of the book talking about the truth of the gospel. And then in Romans chapter 12 he says, if this is true, then this is how we should live. So if we are actually completely broken people and yet God's love is bigger than our brokenness and we've been rescued and called to a whole new thing, this is what he says in Romans chapter 12 verse 3, He says, do not consider yourself more than you ought to. He says, but instead view yourself, listen to this, with sober judgment. Do you hear that? Sober judgment. Now what's fascinating to me is all the verses I I, I referred to earlier, Romans 3.23, Romans 6.23, Ephesians chapter 2, Colossians chapter 1, all these wonderful verses about human brokenness and God's love that that in so many ways speak to the truth of salvation. Can I tell you something? They're all written to people who have already believed Jesus. Do you know that? It's not that they don't apply to other people, but it's the sense that for Paul, these these are not just entry points. They're foundational to living the life that God has called us to live. He says, look at yourself in sober judgment. One author says it this way. That humility deepens when we account for our honest brokenness and therefore grow in our gratitude for who Jesus is and for what he's done for us. That this is the Christian life.
And for Paul, there's four things, and there's many more. If you want to dig through Romans chapter 12, there's lots to be seen there. But there's four really profound things that come out of this this life of, of honest assessment of who we are and therefore entering into humility on the basis of who Jesus is. The first is what I'll call holistic worship. Holistic worship, that is being a person who is defined by worship rather than simply someone who attends church gatherings, right? Someone whose life would be defined as given to God. Uh, Paul very famously writes, uh, Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, he says, Therefore, on the basis of this gospel, if this gospel is true, then the only acceptable thing that you can do is to offer yourself as a living and holy sacrifice to God. This is your spiritual service of worship. The response to brokenness in gratitude for what Jesus has done for us is to offer our lives to God. To be people who are defined by worship. The Old Testament oftentimes talks about worship in the sense of the fear of the Lord. Right? You've heard that phrase? The fear of the Lord for me is not necessarily nervous jittering. It's more thinking lofty thoughts of God and less lofty thoughts of ourselves. Right? This reverence that comes. So much so that the, the writer of Ecclesiastes would say, when I come into God's presence, I recognize that he is God, that I'm on earth, and I will let my words be few. Now, is he saying that God wants us to like, be really condensed in what we say to him? No, he's using narrative imagery to say there's this reverent way in which you enter, this sense in which you understand who you are, and you understand what God has done for you that changes the disposition of how you engage God, right? The second thing besides holistic worship is true discipleship. The very next verse, it says, So do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. It's speaking about change in who we are, growing to be more like Jesus. I'm always fascinated by the the words that that Paul and other writers choose. He chooses this word transform, right? Have you ever transformed something? It is not a small undertaking, right? You can redo things. You can repaint things. You can renovate things. To transform something is something pretty all-encompassing, right? Remember those shows where they would come in uh, and they would like transform a whole house for someone? Right? Versus the, the other shows where so they come in and redo a room. All of it is like overwhelming to me. But they, 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 it's this radical transformation that happens. It's all encompassing. So, logic would tell me that if what Paul is saying is that we need an all-encompassing change, then it must be true that we've got a big problem. Right? That it's not just confined to the bathroom or to the upstairs bedroom but it's the whole house. A radical and massive transformation. And how does it happen? It happens through the gospel. Right? He says, don't be conformed to this world. That's what I don't want you to do. Be transformed. That's what I do want you to do. And then he goes to the how. By renewing your mind. Right? What does that mean? It means taking Romans 1 through 11, 
the entirety of the gospel and bringing it to bear on every reality of your life. This is how you are transformed. This is how you are changed. And a big part of that reality is that you are broken in every way possible. And a bigger part of that reality is, but God has loved you with a love that is stronger than anything that is broken. And he can and does bring you to the newness of life and offers you everything that you've longed for in terms of true identity. What does it mean to not be conformed to this world, but be transformed at your workplace when your boss is the worst and he's treating you or she's treating you the wrong way, not giving you what you think you deserve, not seeing the benefits that you're bringing to the company? Well, it means bringing the gospel to bear on the situation, saying, well, wait a minute. Let's start with the fact that I'm a deeply broken person, right? As great as I might think I might be in this job, fair enough, I may be performing very well. But when you begin to see yourself as a broken person, then you also understand that this person, the boss, is, yes, actually a broken person too. And that all of systems in the business are broken things. And the pursuit of fairness is not really the pursuit that God calls us to. He calls us to the pursuit of restoration and renewal. And it begins to change how you perceive the situation. This is how you transform your mind, you transform yourself through the renewing of your mind. As one example, there's about a trillion in every instance of life, in parenting your kids, in, in living with a roommate, in marriage, in all kinds of aspects. Paul says, foundational to being able to function in this world is being willing to admit that you are deeply broken. Right? Deeply broken. Third thing is genuine love. Verse 9 of Romans chapter 12 says, Love must be sincere. It's a great verse, right? And it's hate what is evil, cling to what is good. But love must be sincere. This word sincere is a fantastic word. It's actually a Greek word that means unmasked, right? In those days, they would have actors who would wear masks to tell you what kind of, of performance they were doing. There was comedic masks, there were dramatic masks, so forth and so on. Paul is saying, when you love, it is not for show, right? It is not some, some show or thing you're putting on. It's sincere and it's real. And where does it come from? From not thinking more of yourself than you ought, but rather considering yourself in sober judgment. You see it? That when you come to grips with your brokenness, it actually opens your heart to everyone else. My mom used to have a saying, uh, and I love my mom, and I think this saying is true, and it's not her saying. Lots of people say it. She, say, she would say, there but by the grace of God go I, right? And I get what's trying to be said in that saying, yet I wonder if the better way to say it is, there go I, <laughs> right? But Paul's after this sense of embracing humanity in such a profound way because we're understanding just how broken humanity is. And it's not us against them, or we're better than them, but a sense of pursuing the renewal that only the gospel can bring, that only comes when we embrace the gospel in a profound way, that only happens when we understand just how profound our need for the gospel actually is. To love in an unmasked way. Did you read the story about that GoFundMe mishap? Right? Did you read the story? These people who concoct, they, they, well, we tell the story from the beginning. 
She had uh, been near a gas, or been pulled off the side of the road. Her car was out of gas. She had no money. There was a, a homeless veteran who was there who offered her his last $20. And she was able to take that and go and buy gas. And she went home and she was preserved by this man. And so when she went home, she wanted to, to start uh, something to be able to repay him, to give, to show him love and to do all these things. And so she started to go fund me, told the story of what this man had done for her. And she raised over $400,000. You read this? Over $400,000 for this man. The problem is, it was all a lie. Did you read the story? It was all fake. The story was made up. He never gave her money for gas. All three of the people were in on it. And they basically robbed people of $400,000 by a mass sense of love. Now, we don't do that. And yet, much of our love is not sincere. And then the last thing is unity in the church. Verse 10, chapter 12 of Romans says, Be devoted to one another in love and honor one another. Devotion and honor are strong terms. And they rise up. It says in, 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 chap, in chapter 12, verse 10, they rise up from actually thinking of others as more important than yourself, Paul says. Paul writes about unity in Philippians chapter 2 amongst other places. And he says, listen, the only way we'll have unity is if we embark on the kind of humility that we see in Jesus Christ himself. A total willingness to sacrifice. To love others in these kind of profound ways. All of this is possible because of Jesus' work for us. We want to be a church, and we want to speak to the world about the truth of the church where there are no perfect people allowed. Where brokenness is not only welcomed, but acknowledged. Where people are able to be themselves and yet called to something more because of what Jesus has done. A place where we are mimicking what Jesus has done for us by embracing and welcoming people into this family. Paul says, basically, in, in, in receiving the gospel, he's called out as a testimony, I love this word, of the patience of Jesus. Right? That if Jesus can be patient with Paul... He can be patient with us. And he is being patient with our world. If we are going to be the kind of church that can live this truth out, then it has to start with an honest and healthy assessment that we are that. And not that we're on some moral, moral superior hill welcoming people who are less than us in. Does it it make sense? That this is who we are. That the fullness of the gospel, the full life that Jesus offers, can only truly be embraced when we are honest about just how broken we are. And the more honest we are, the more of the gospel we taste. And the more of the gospel we taste, the more love and gratitude we have for Jesus because of what he has actually done for us. 
Jesus did not just take a piece of paper that was ripped and tape it back together. He took one of your Christmas tree ornaments that you accidentally left on the ground and your kids stepped on, right? You've ever had that happen? It shatters to a million pieces. And he brought it back even more glorious than it was before. This is what Christ has done for us. This is huge. This is bigger than anything we can imagine. And in our lives, if we believe it, And if we live into it, it is the greatest testimony to the world that Jesus is patient with them and that his love is greater than their brokenness and that life and family are available to them now. Can I pray with you?